Genesis 18, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you that you love us and that you're present in our lives, that you have given us your son, Emmanuel, God with us. We choose to draw near to you, claiming the promise that you'll draw near to us. God, would you allow your word to fall on fresh ears and hearts that are open to you? May it bring forth fruit in our lives. And we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs> Contrast is one of the best ways to learn. If you set aside a, a bad example next to a good example, it really causes the truth to come to light. And in Genesis 18 and 19, we see the good example of Abraham contrasted by the compromise of Lot. And there's a lot that speaks to us, especially in the areas of our families and our household. Verse 1 of chapter 18, Then the Lord appeared to him by the terebinth trees of Mamre, as he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day. So the Lord comes and appears to Abraham, has another conversation with him as he's 99 years old. It's the heat of the day. It's the hot of the day. And here Abraham is sitting underneath the tree. He's by the tree, by the tent door. So he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing by. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself uh, to the ground. So we have the angel of the Lord with two men. There's times in the Old Testament where Christ comes onto the pages of the Old Testament in the form of the angel of the Lord. Not, not every time that you read angel of the Lord, but sometimes when you read angel of the Lord, it's a theophany, God coming onto the pages of the Old Testament. And that's what we find here. We find the angel of the Lord, God being revealed with two angels. Abraham realizes that there's something special about this visitor, about these three men. And so he runs from his tent to these three visitors, and he bows down before them upon the ground. Now picture a 99-year-old running to meet somebody. Probably wasn't very fast. But this shows the heart of Abraham for fellowship with God. When the alarm clock goes off in the morning, do we run to the presence of the Lord? You know, if God wakes us up early before our alarm goes off, do we run to have uh, time with the Lord? And this shows how Abraham, he longed to have fellowship and intimacy with God. In verse 3, and said, My Lord, if I have now found favor in your sight, do not pass on by your servant. So stay and spend some time with me. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourself under the tree. I'll bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh your heart. After that, you may pass by inasmuch as you have come to your servant. They said, do as you've said. So this is an invitation. Would you stay for a while? Would you stay for some refreshment? Would you stay for some food? Let me prepare some food uh, for you. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, you can see the excitement in Abraham. He hurried to meet his visitors. Now he's hurrying to make preparation. Quickly make ready three measures of fine meal, knead it, and make cakes. So get baking. We've got these amazing visitors. We want to prepare uh, food for them. And Abraham, Abraham ran to the herd, took a tender and good calf, gave it to the young man, and he hastened to prepare it. So he gets the best of his cattle. Gets the young cattle, the tender cattle that just 
tastes so good. In verse eight, so he took butter and milk and the calf which he had prepared and set it before them and he stood by them under the tree as they ate. It must have taken some time to prepare the food. I don't know if you've ever been sitting at a restaurant and it takes so long that you jokingly said, I think they had to go kill the chicken out back, right? Well, this is literally what took place. You know, they had to go kill the, the cow and, and get it ready before they would eat it. I mean, the whole thing is from farm to table right now. Like, that's the cool thing. This is farm to table, right? It's like, here he is out in the pasture, and now we're, we're eating him up. They go to great effort to show hospitality to these three men, because ultimately Abraham knows it's the Lord. And now the Lord begins to speak specifically of Sarah. Then they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? So he said, here in the tent. He knows Sarah's heart. He knows that Sarah's struggling with believing that she's going to have a child. God wants to confirm his promise to Sarah, so he calls her out. In verse 10, and he said, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life. And behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. So I'm going to come back to you in a, a year's time and your wife, Sarah, is going to have a son. Sarah was listening in the tent door, which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, well advanced in age, and Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. So Sarah has been barren her whole married life, but also now she's past the age of childbearing. Metapause has, has set in. It's physically impossible to have children, and she's listening in to this conversation that the Lord and Abraham are having. Therefore, Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I've grown old, shall I have pleasure? My Lord being, my Lord being old also. So she's saying, look, this is long gone in our lives. Are you telling me that I'm going to have pleasure with, with Abraham? He's not able, and I'm not able, and you get the message, right? So this is what's going on in her heart as she's hearing this news. And the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh, saying, shall I surely bear a child since I'm so old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah, Sarah shall have a son. In previous chapter, Abraham laughed when the promise of God was shared with him, and he was not corrected because it was a laugh of celebration. It was like, oh, Lord, you're so good. And he was embracing the promise of God in faith. This is the opposite reaction of Sarah. She's laughing in disbelief. She's laughing in unbelief. She's saying, there is no way that this is possible that I'm going to have a child. It's physically impossible for me to have a child. And God then confronts her on her laughter and says, is there anything that is too hard for me? Now we all do this. We take our difficulty and we rate it to God's ability. So let's say, for instance, if we have a headache, that might be something that God could take care of. But if we have cancer, that may not be something that God can take care of. Right. If there's a financial need of $100, well, maybe God can handle that. But if it's 1000 or more, I think that might be a little bit too difficult for the Lord. So we take difficulty and we rate it on our scale. And then we go, well, it's more difficult for me, so it must be more difficult for God. And God says, is anything too hard for me? 
I'm the creator of the universe. I'm the God of salvation. Nothing is too difficult for me. One of the great lessons with Abraham and Sarah's life is this lesson of trusting the Lord. And we saw last week with their venture with Hagar, they had a lapse in trusting the Lord. Unbelief did uh, set in. But the overarching theme of Abraham's life is one that he trusted God. He believed that God was able to fulfill the promise, even if it was impossible in and of himself. That God was able to do the impossible. Even after God gives them the promised child, God speaks to him and says, take Isaac and offer him up upon the altar. Sacrifice, kill your son. And the scripture says that Abraham believed that God would raise his son from the dead because this was the son of promise. That's how much Abraham believed it. So if I have to put my son to death, God's going to raise him from the dead because it's through him that this promise is going to be fulfilled that I'm going to have descendants of, of the sands of the sea. And so don't try to take the difficulty and then rationalize it with God's ability. Say, God, nothing's too hard for you. I can trust you. I can depend upon you. I can put my full weight into your faithfulness. In verse 15, classic response from Sarah. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. (laughs) She's like, no, no, that wasn't me laughing. That was Hagar. She was laughing. And the Lord just says, no, you did laugh. Even though Sarah has a heart of unbelief, God's faithful to his promises. God's faithful even when we're faithless. Conversation now continues with the Lord and Abraham. Then the men rose from there and looked toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to send them on their way. So they're overlooking the city of Sodom. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? Abraham in the book of James is called the friend of God. And what do you do with a friend? You share your heart. You share your plans. You share what you're up to. And here God is sharing his heart with with Abraham. Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him, that's fulfilled in Jesus As Jesus comes through the lineage of Abraham, all the nations are blessed through Jesus. For I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they may keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he's spoken to him. I know that Abraham is going to continue to lead his family in the ways of the Lord. He's going to communicate these things to his children, and those are going to be passed on to his children's children. And you contrast that with Lot and the spiritual condition of Lot and his wife and his kids that we're going to read in just a moment to the confidence that the Lord has in Abraham that he's going to share the knowledge of God uh, with his children. And we don't do this perfectly by any means, but as parents, we want to pass on the knowledge of Christ to our kids. Share who Christ is. Share the scriptures that God is speaking into your life. Share what he has done and he is doing. Hopefully the Lord would have this confidence in us that we're going to to share the knowledge of the Lord with the next generation. In verse 20, and the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and because their sin is very grave, 
I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me, and if not, I will know. So God says this outcry of the wickedness, it's very grave, it's very serious, it's, it's come before the Lord. And so the Lord is sending these two angels to confirm if this wickedness is true, then to bring judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah. And this is something for us to remember and to bring us to a place where we're sober before the Lord is that God sees the wickedness of a land, doesn't he? He sees the wickedness of a community. He sees the the wickedness of a, a nation. And ultimately that comes before him and in his timing he brings judgment. So God's going to judge Sodom and Gomorrah and also we know that God is eventually going to judge the world. Not too long ago we studied the book of Revelations, didn't we? And that's God's judgment, his righteous judgment on a Christ uh, rejecting world. Sometimes as we're journeying through this in our own lives and in the lives of others, we think that God doesn't see. We, we think that God doesn't see the wickedness of our community. He sees. And hopefully it's his kindness that's leading us to repentance, but ultimately the Lord is going to bring judgment. He's going to make things right. In order for him to be just, he has to bring his judgment. In verse 22, then the men turned away from there and went toward Sodom. So the two angels go toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. And Abraham came near and said, would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Abraham could have easily let this go, this being an ending conversation with the Lord, but he presses in and he comes near to the Lord and he asks this question saying, are you going to judge the righteous with the wicked? What if there's some righteous that are there in Sodom? Abraham knows that this is where Lot, his nephew, lives. Abraham's already risked his life, risked his neck to go and save Lot when he was captured. And he's going to intercede on behalf of of his nephew. So he goes on and says, suppose that there were 50 righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous that were in it? So he starts at 50. What if there's 50 righteous in Sodom? Would you spare the city? Far be it from you to do such a thing as to slay the righteous with the wicked so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you, shall you not judge all the earth and do right? So Abraham's saying, you're righteous and you make righteous judgments. So would it be fair for you to judge the righteous with the wicked? As we look at scripture, we notice that this is something that God doesn't do. He doesn't judge the righteous with the wicked. Remember Noah. God spared Noah. Noah wasn't judged with the wicked world. We see God even dealing with the Egyptians with the plagues. And many of the plagues affected the Egyptians, but not the Israelites. And so God knows those who are his. And he's not going to pour out his judgment on the righteous with, with the wicked. And God, or Abraham, understands this about the Lord. So there's this bartering almost taking place. So the Lord said, if If I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. All right, if there's 50 righteous, the whole city gets spared. Not just the 50 that are righteous, but God's going to spare the whole city. 
Now, if I'm Abraham, I'd probably feel like I've already pushed it. It's a good time to call it a day. But Abraham continues. And Abraham answered and said, Indeed now, I who am but dust and ashes have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. I know my place, but I'm going to continue to speak to the Lord. Suppose there were five less than 50 righteous. Would you destroy all the city for the lack of five? So he said, if I find 45, I would not destroy it. It almost sounds like my kids bartering for ice cream, you know, right? Well, what if there's five less? What if there's just five less? Would you be willing to spare the city? And God says, okay, 45. I'll do, do 45. And he spoke to him yet again and said, suppose that there be 40 found there. So he said, I will do it for the sake of 40. And we really see Abraham's bold heart of intercession here to continue, even after 40. Then he said, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 should be found there. Now this is a big jump. You mathematicians, he's going by fives. Now he goes by 10. He's like, we're on a roll here. We're going to go all the way from 40 down to 30. What What if there's 30 that are found there? So he said, I will not do it if I find 30. So the whole city spared if there's 30 righteous. In verse 31, and he said, indeed now I have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 should be found there. Another jump of 10. So he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of 20. Let's call it a day, right? This is pretty good. There's got to be 20 righteous there. But Abraham continues. Then he said, Let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak but once more. Suppose ten should be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of ten. So if there's ten righteous in the city, God is going to spare the whole entire city. Lot's probably, or Abraham is probably doing some math at this point, going, okay, Lot, his wife, his kids, maybe some grandkids of lots. Okay, there's got to be 10. Maybe they've reached a a few neighbors. 10. I feel comfortable with 10. So the Lord went his way as soon as he'd finished speaking with Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Let's pause. Why is this recorded for us in scripture? Why does God give this to us? We see in the heart of Abraham this heart to want to fellowship with God, of going to all this effort that God would feel at home in Abraham's tent to give the best to the Lord. God speaks to Sarah, then Abraham continues to pursue fellowship with the Lord, and God begins to reveal his plans to Abraham. And Abraham intercedes, and the amazing thing is God listens. And we don't see Abraham praying against God's will or trying to have God bend his character. He's saying, man, if if there is wicked, go ahead and judge them. But if there's righteous in the midst of them, would you spare the wicked for the sake of, of the righteous? And sometimes in our understanding of God, we understand that the Lord is sovereign and he does what he pleases, right? We're agreed on this? So with that understanding, then we say, what's the point of prayer? God's gonna do whatever he wants. He told us that. He's sovereign. He does whatever he pleases. So does it really matter if I pray or not? And I think the answer, the biblical answer, is yes. It does matter if we pray or not. 
because God hears and responds to the prayer of Abraham. Now, where God's sovereignty and man's responsibility to pray meets, I don't know. But the same God that's sovereign also commands us to pray. And throughout scripture, we see God listening and responding to his people praying. And we, of course, want to pray according to God's will for his will to be done and his kingdom to come. But there's a work that God wants to do through the prayers of his people when we humble ourselves and we pray. And it's a great example to follow Abraham in those that you love and intercede on their behalf. Remember a few weeks ago, I was talking to you about developing a cry list. Those that are urgent prayers before God, those that you love, those that are burdened upon your heart, and say, Lord, would you work in this? And tarry a little longer than you would normally. Be bold enough to say, can I get 45? (laughs) Can we go to 40? Can we go to 30? Can we go to 20? Can we go to 10? God, I'm going to keep knocking upon your door. God tells us to ask, to seek, and to knock. Keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. Is there someone that you're praying for? Is there a lot in your life that you are praying for? God is listening, and he's answering, and he's responding. And you're saying, well, God still destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Yes, there weren't 10 righteous found there, but God saved Lot and Lot's two daughters and attempted to save Lot's wife, but she wasn't willing. God responded to the prayer of Abraham. We're going to see that very clearly in chapter 19. So keep praying. Don't give up. Verse 1 of chapter 19. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face towards the ground. This is quite the digression in Lot's life. If you remember Lot was given a choice that he could choose land because there was too much cattle for Abraham and Lot to continue to dwell together. And Lot chose to set up his camp just outside of Sodom. It was a good financial decision, but it wasn't a good spiritual decision. And at that point, he had the wisdom to be leery of Sodom because of their wickedness. But then as the story of Genesis progresses, we find him dwelling in Sodom. So he looked at Sodom, camped outside of Sodom, and then he decides to live in Sodom. Now he's in the gate. And you're saying, big deal. Well, it's a big deal because this is where the elders, the leaders would sit and make decisions. So Lot has become a leader in Sodom. Now there would be no problem with this if Lot was impacting Sodom. But everything from the text indicates the exact opposite, that Sodom is impacting Lot and his family. Does that make sense? Because we're called to be in this world, but not of this world. We're to be salt and light to a lost and dying world that doesn't know Christ as our Savior, but we have to monitor at some point who's changing who, right? Is Lot changing Sodom or is Sodom changing Lot? I think that Lot is the one who's at that place of compromise. Be careful in our lives. Compromise comes slow, but it's steady and sure. Are we finding ourselves moving closer and closer to the things of this world in the affection of our hearts? 
where we're loving this world. We're loving the world's ideas. And we're embracing more and more the things that are against God. And we're beginning this road of compromise. So Lot sees these two men. He knows they're visitors. And so he approaches them. Verse 2, and he said, Here now, my lords, please turn into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go your way. And they said, no, but we will spend the night in the open square. So some hospitality, but not near as much as what Abraham showed. But he insisted strongly, so they turned into him and entered his house. Then he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. So they do decide to come and find refuge in Sodom's house. Now before they lay down, the men of the city... The men of Sodom, both old and young, all the people from every corner surrounded the house. And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them carnally. So all of the men of the city, old and young, come around Lot's house and say, You've got some visitors. We want to know them sexually. Bring them out so that we can have relationship with them. And this shows the sexual perversion that had entered into Sodom and Gomorrah and the reason for God's judgment. Now, we must talk about this in our day and age, haven't we? Because this is a very hotly contested issue of sexuality. First, this is going to blow your mind, but who's the designer of sex? God. We studied that in the book of Genesis, didn't we? God created Adam and Eve, male and female. So God defines sexuality. God defines marriage. And Sodom and Gomorrah decide they're going to mess with God's design. And they're going to twist and pervert God's design. So when it comes to a society, we're saying there is right and wrong when it comes to sexuality because that's what the Bible teaches. That's what God teaches. And God's design is for life. Amen? It's for the purpose of promoting life and life abundantly. And when we get off from God's design, it brings destruction in our lives. So don't just ever adopt the idea that God doesn't care about sexuality. Because from his word, he clearly does. And it's easy for us because it's such a hot topic in our culture to start to back down and start to accept what the world teaches about sexuality. But I don't see God apologizing for his word, do you? Right. right? He's proud of his design, and he's saying this is the way that I've created men and women and to enjoy sexuality inside of, of marriage. And so we aren't ang angry about it or arrogant about it or mean about it, but we don't back down from, from God's design. More and more, church, you're going to have to decide if you accept all of this or none of this. Does this make sense? We have to decide, do I accept what God teaches, Genesis to Revelation, or do I pick and choose what I believe? Because God doesn't say, hey, you get to pick and choose what you, you want to believe. He says, I'm God, and this is what's best for you, so choose it and, and follow it. And I wonder what some of the conversations that were taking place in the culture of Sodom and Gomorrah that got them to this point to where that this was embraced so largely that when two visitors would come into the city that you would find the men 
young and old coming to now have sexual relations with them. In verse 6, so Lot went out to them through the doorway, shut the door behind them, and said, please, my brethren, do not do so wickedly. So Lot stands up to this multitude, and he says, don't do this wickedness. This may surprise you, but in Peter's writings in the New Testament, Lot is called righteous. So Lot's heart was committed to the Lord, but he finds himself in a compromising position. To Lot's credit here, he goes and he voices, guys, don't do this. This is wickedness. But it continues, see now I have two daughters who have not known a man. Please let me bring them out to you and you may know them as you wish. Only do nothing to these men since this is the reason they have come under the shadow of my roof. Now some will take these verses and say, in this culture, hospitality is a huge deal, and if someone came under your roof, you have to keep them safe. And I know that that's absolutely true, but it doesn't justify Lot's actions. For Lot to say, well, I've got these visitors here, I'm going to protect them, but here's my uh, two daughters that have never known a man, y you can know them. It's just a amazing, mind-blowing how Lot can get to this place. And he's become desensitized. Sodom has entered into Lot's heart and, and mind. Just like we've become desensitized. You know, there's things that probably shocked us five years ago that don't shock us now. I'm pretty sure that if our grandparents were here, uh, they'd be rolling over in their graves, Right? But it's become normal to us. And we shouldn't be to that place where we're de desensitized. There's something that's gone wrong in Lot for him to have this response and offer his two daughters. And hopefully, God's word tonight helps bring us out of that place of desensitization when it comes to sin, and especially sexual sin. Is there things that we know are wrong that should alarm us in our hearts and our lives, but we've been so lulled to sleep that it doesn't alarm us anymore. When God writes to the church in Romans 13 and he says, wake up for the night is far spent, what kind of spiritual condition was the church in? Do you know that it's possible to be saved and be God's child and be going to heaven? but we can be asleep spiritually. We're not awake. We're not being convicted by sin. We're not convicted by the grossness and the perversion of, of our culture. We don't want to find ourselves in, in Lot's place, do we? Where we're offering up our daughters in this way. In verse nine, and they said, stand back. Then they said, this one came in here this one came in to stay here, and he keeps acting as judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. So now they start speaking against Lot, saying, you're a foreigner, and now you're trying to judge us. So they pressed hard against the man Lot and came near to break down the door. But the men reached out their hands and pulled Lot into the house with them and shut the door. God's protection. The angels just going, boom. Lot, come on in here and close the door. And they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they became weary trying to find the door. 
This is one of the more astonishing verses in the Bible because even after these men are struck with blindness, they still try to find the door to break it down to have their way with the two visitors. This shows their determination to want to sin. It also shows that the real issue is lust in their hearts. Because even after they're blind and they can't see, they want to try to fulfill the lust of their flesh. Please hear me out on this. If we don't accept God's design for sexuality, where's the limit? I mean, where's it going to stop, right? So if we say, I don't accept that sex is between a man and a woman inside of the commitment of marriage, I'm going to do whatever I want with my sexuality that God has given to me, where does that lead to? It leads to perversion and lust and perversion and lust and perversion and lust and just multiplies and multiplies to the sickness that we see all around us, right? And so we've got to say, Lord, I see that your plan is best and I see that you are the power to be able to live out that plan because otherwise we find ourselves in the same place as these men that are completely gone wild in their sexual sin. In verse 12, then the men said to Lot, have you had anyone else here? Son-in-law, your sons, your daughters, and whomever you have in the city, take them out of this place. You better get your whole family out of here. For we will destroy this place because the outcry against them has grown great before the face of the Lord. And the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his son-in-law, his sons-in-laws, so he's at least got two, who had married his daughters and said, get up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy the city. But to his sons-in-laws, he seemed to be joking. Isn't this heartbreaking? All right. Guys, we got to get out of here. God's going to destroy the city. Oh man, Lot, you're funny. You've always been a funny father-in-law. That's a good one. That's a good joke. But isn't God's judgment become a joke in our culture? When you talk to people about going to hell, they're like, oh man, hell, no big deal. When it freezes over, I'm going to ski and snowboard there too. It's just going to be this giant party with me and, and my friends. And God's judgment has become a complete joke. In verse 15, when the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot to hurry, saying, Arise, take your wife, your two daughters who are here, lest you be consumed in the punishment of the city. And while he lingered, the men took hold of his hand, his wife's hand, and the hands of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful to them, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. Why is Lot lingering in Sodom? Because his life is there. It's prosperous financially. He has possessions there. He's got a good job. He's got a position of leadership. And here he is lingering in compromise. Have you ever been there in your life, in your relationship with the Lord, where God is clearly convicting, he's clearly showing you're on this road of destruction? And you're like, I know, but I just want to stay here for a while. I'm so used to this. This is so good. This is a, a good place uh, to be. And if you're in that place tonight as the child of God, may God's hand just mercifully grab you and say, no, don't stay in that place. 
it's going to lead to complete destruction. And thankfully, God is merciful. God is merciful for, to Lot here. God answers the prayer of Abraham, and God grabs him and pulls him and starts dragging him out of the city. So it came to pass when they brought them outside that he said, escape for your life and do not look behind you nor stay anywhere in the plain. Escape to the mountains lest you be destroyed. That instruction of don't look back is going to become important in a moment. Then the Lord said to them, please know my lords. Indeed, now your servant has found favor in your sight and you have increased your mercy, which you have shown me by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountains, lest some evil overtake me and I die. What? God's messenger is saying, look, you need to get to the mountains. It's not safe down in the plains, in these cities. I'm going to destroy these cities. And Lot's saying, no, I don't want to go to the mountains. This doesn't seem to be like a good time to be arguing with God's messenger. Agreed? So he starts doing his own bartering, completely different than Abraham. See now, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Please let me escape there. Is it not a little one, and my soul shall live? I don't want to be up in the mountains. I want to be in this small city. And he said to him, See, I have, I have favored you concerning this thing also, and that I will not overthrow this city for which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there. For I cannot do anything till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zora, which means little or insignificant. So the angels let him go to this small city. Then the sun had risen upon the earth when Lot entered Zora. Then the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. So he overthrew those cities, all the plain and the inhabitants of the cities, and what it grew on the ground. So in a moment, God brings judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah, fire from heaven. In Matthew 11, Jesus is talking about Capernaum, and he brings up Sodom and Gomorrah. And Jesus says, if the works that had been done in Capernaum were done in Sodom, Sodom would still be standing, because Sodom would have repented. And then he goes on to say that it was more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than it would be for Capernaum in the day of judgment. God uses Sodom and Gomorrah as a standard for his judgment going forward in the future. He's saying, look, Jesus has been revealed to you, Capernaum, and you have rejected Christ, and you're going to receive far more judgment than that of Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 26, but his wife looked back behind him, and she became a pillar of salt. Jesus also references Lot's wife. In Luke 17, Jesus says, remember Lot's wife. She looks back at Sodom and Gomorrah with fondness. So there's two things happening here. We're having a hard time getting Lot out of Sodom, and we're having a hard time getting Sodom out of Lot and his family. Does that make sense? So if God has rescued you, rescued me out of a place of compromise, do not look back. Don't look over your shoulder going, life was so good in Sodom and Gomorrah. And your flesh is going to have opportunity to do that. 
We go, oh man, it was so good. We party and we would have so much fun. And man, when I was in sexual sin, that was a, a really good time. When I was given over to greed and in my selfishness, when my anger had the best of me, Amen. when drugs, alcohol, that, that was my thing. And before you know it, you start looking back and you're going to be turned to a pillar of salt from the inside. God doesn't want us looking back. He wants us looking forward saying, Lord, thank you. Thank you so much from saving me from those things. Don't look back. In verse 27, and Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he stood before the Lord. So Abraham now goes to this outlook where he had talked with the Lord and looks over Sodom. Then he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the plain. And he saw and behold the smoke of the land, which went up like the smoke of a furnace. And it came to pass... When God destroyed the cities of the plain, that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had dwelt. Abraham may have been tempted to think, my prayer didn't amount to much. And here God remembered his prayer, and it was because of the prayer of Abraham that God rescued Lot. Yeah, there wasn't ten righteous, so God didn't spare the city, but God spared Lot his two daughters, and and Lot's wife, if she would have chosen to take the road out. Maybe there was a mom or a grandma or an aunt or a friend that really prayed for you when you didn't know Christ as your Savior. It'll be interesting in heaven to see how God's work in our life is correlated to those prayers. Just how God's work in Lot's life was correlated to Abraham's prayer. So keep praying for that lot in your life. Well, I'd like to say that the chapter ends on good news, but it really doesn't. Verse 30. I know you were looking for some midweek encouragement on this Wednesday night, so here it is. Then Lot went up out of Zorah and dwelt in the mountains. Can we get another what? He wanted to go to Zorah because he was afraid of the mountains, but once he gets to Zorah, Now he wants to go live in the mountains. It just shows how mixed up Lot is. And his two daughters were with him, for he was afraid to dwell in Zorah. And he and his two daughters dwelt in a cave. Now the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is no man on earth to come in to us, as is the custom of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve the lineage of our father." So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father, and he didn't know when she lay down or when she rose. Now, I just want to know where they got the alcohol. I mean, things are pretty dire, and they're pretty difficult, and they're running for their lives, and they make a quick stop at Zora, this small town, and they must have hit up the liquor store. (laughs) Or they get to the cave, and they're like, wow, Praise the Lord, somebody stored some liquor in here for us, right? Somebody stored some wine for us, and, and we really need it. This is pretty obvious, but if you're in the cave of de- depression and despair, don't mix it with alcohol and drugs. Elijah, the prophet, was also in the cave of discouragement, and he waited upon the Lord, and a still small voice encouraged him. The alcohol and drugs, when you're in a place of discouragement, It's just going to lead to more discouragement and more bad decisions. 
goes on in verse 34. It happened on the next day that the firstborn said to the younger, indeed, I lay with my father last night. Let us make him drink wine tonight also, and you go in and lie with him that we may preserve the lineage of our father. Then they made their father drink wine that night also, and the younger arose and lay with him. And she did not know when she lay down or when she arose. So you can see how Sodom had gotten inside of the hearts, the ideology, the belief system had gotten inside of the hearts and minds of Lot and his, his daughters. So here's the result. Thus both the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. And the younger, she also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the people of Ammon to this day. Moab means from my father. So this boy grew up knowing of the incestuous relationship. Ben-Amin means son of my kinsmen. The Moabites and the Ammonites became perpetual enemies of the nation of Israel as things move forward and you read the rest of uh, the Old Testament. So here's some application for us tonight. The first is, don't laugh in unbelief. When God says, look, I'm able to do this, Respond with a laughter of celebration, not a laughter of unbelief. Keep praying. God hears and responds. I think that that's for some of us tonight. You're praying for someone who's not in the place that they should be in spiritually. They've found themselves dwelling in Sodom. In fact, maybe they're even a leader in the gates of Sodom. Keep praying for them. God hears and responds. And then I think there's a very strong warning for us here from Lot's life, and it's don't love the world or the things of this world. We got to be really, really careful when it comes to our love and what we're giving our love to and start examining this question, am I impacting Sodom or is Sodom impacting me? So let's stand together and let's pray. Father, these chapters, they show us our need for for you, Jesus, to die on the cross for us, to take our, our punishment. Lord, and as we live in a culture that seems so much like Sodom and Gomorrah, would you help us to be in love with you, to be committed to you? Especially in this this area of sexuality that's so contested. May we choose your ways and may you empower us through the power of your Holy Spirit to to live out your command and sexual integrity. And Lord, areas of our lives where we're compromising and we're lingering, we're just hanging out in Sodom and Gomorrah when we should be escaping. Would you make us more like Abraham, who's set apart, who's not compromising and can be used by you, May you stir us in this area of prayer, that you hear our prayers, that you invite us to come and intercede on behalf of others. And Lord, we pray for our community and we pray for so many in our city that don't know you and those that are close in this neighborhood and those on the west side and the east side and south and fountain, north and monument. We just pray for a move of your spirit throughout Colorado Springs, throughout the front range, 
that people would see their need for you and Lord, that you'd fill us with your spirit to go and share your love. So Lord, we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name, amen.